Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast, covering the latest breakthroughs, research, news and insight delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. I really came upon this by by chance. I I used to be a head. I used to be a teacher, uh, and I was a head teacher up in Scotland. Um, I've taught for many years. I gave up my job, and I ended up doing a, a master's in education at the University of Edinburgh. And when that master's was over, I then um, I then was offered a chance to do a PhD, and that PhD um, at that time was fully funded uh, by the. ESRC, that's the Economic Social Research Council, and the Scottish Government. And it was specifically to look into how we could improve our understanding of the lives of gypsy travellers in Scotland. And that then took me on this four-year journey researching uh, their lives. So just to give you a bit of context about, about who gypsies and travellers are, um, Scottish travellers have lived in Scotland since the 12th century, and it, making them one of Britain's oldest uh, nomadic communities. Um, and, and like their Roma counterparts in Europe, um, gypsy travellers have experienced multiple forms of persecution and marginality spanning centuries. Um, they are often ignored, erased, and they're demonized as a well-known other. So as I was doing my research, this, these tropes kept coming up over and over and over again. Um, you know, and the, 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 there was a lot of... I also discovered that there was a huge gap um, in the existing literature on gypsy traveler women in particular, which exacerbated the... <laughs> the complexity of of censorship and absence, their voice not being heard. And so of the limited studies that were available, um, it's it's quite significant that gypsy and traveller women, again, like their Roma sisters, are perceived as either being a problem, having problems, um, being polluted or unclean or having the, the potential to pollute and dishonour their communities. You know, So there's a real lack of contemporary research about gypsy and traveller women in Scotland and indeed elsewhere. And, 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 and this follows a long tradition of certain types of women and girls either being erased uh, from their communities experienced or, as I've discovered, being discussed in sexist and racist ways. And their voices are missing. I argue in my book that... This is the, the image of the gypsy and the traveller is, is very carefully crafted over centuries. And the, this carefully crafted image in the European and Scottish mainstream uh, till this day associates gypsies and travellers with being thieves, wild, dirty, um, they are accused of avoiding gainful employment or paying taxes. Their children accused of not wanting to go to school, being largely uneducated. Um, they are thought of as being particularly cunning as a race, uh, involved in the mystical arts, witchcraft and magic spells. Um, there's this assumption that their daughters, their girls only want to get married and have children. 
that they are all poor, they all live in caravans. Um, and so the symbolic public perception reflects gypsies and travelers as a, as a demonized other. And this goes back centuries. So, for example, um, in, in the, the, there are, for example, genocidal laws against gypsies and travelers. Oh, and at that time in Christian Europe, they were often referred to as Egyptians. Um, and these, were, these genocidal laws were commonly enacted in many countries across Christian Europe. I mean, in 1541, I think, 1541, the first wave of anti-gypsy laws was introduced in Scotland. And then in the 1570s, um, Scottish gypsies and travellers, you know, they were ordered to stop travelling, to leave Scotland, or face the death penalty. Um, and then again, a few decades later, a further law in Scotland declared that since all gypsies were thieves by habit or repute, they should be put to death or transported to the Americas. Um, you had um, a policy, or even at that time, where ch their children were forcibly removed from them and transported to colonies in Australia and America, Canada. So they, they have survived by staying hidden and invisible. Um, and again, you know, even in, even their language, you know, um, it, it's the anti-Gypsy sentiments, uh, for example, uh, they have a language called Cant, C-A-N-T, Cant, and it's spoken by Gypsies in particular. And in the English dictionary, it is referred to as a language used among thieves and beggars, a kind of non-standard speech. And in fact, the word Jip in the English language, for example, means to cheat or swindle. So this is really deep-seated uh, fear of the gypsy and traveler, deep-seated demonization going back centuries. Um, and even today, I mean, gypsies, Roma, and traveler children, for example, remain segregated in schools uh, across some countries in Europe, like Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Hungary. Um, and they still, you know, collect uh, there's a collection of databases and profiles of Roma families and communities. It's still seen as quite acceptable form of monitoring and controlling them and forced assimilation and even eradication. So, I mean, all of some of this to this to this day, some of this is done uh, as a form of, you know, sort of well-intentioned form of trying to help gypsies and travelers lead a, a, what governments assume to be a better life. Um, but it can also, this sort of caring, um, this attempt to care for them, to, to cleanse their lives, to, to make their lives better um, by the majority standards, also means that there's quite a bit of forced assimilation and control um, and in, here in Scotland, there are decades of guidelines, decades of guidelines, recommendations, and even some legislation. Um, but again, these have made very little impact. The progress is glacial. And the media have a major role to play in the continued demonization of gypsies and travelers to this day. Most of the girls I interviewed, um, I, I interviewed about... Uh, 15, 17 girls aged between 12 and 21 years old. 
And most of the girls I interviewed spoke of racist bullying in the primary schools they attended. And as a result, they excluded themselves from mainstream secondary education in particular uh, as a form of protection. Um, the The girls' accounts also suggest that through this self-exclusion and through electing to stay at home, hidden and, and silent, as it were, they and their families exert a measure of control. Um, and this leads to a form of protective segregation. Um, race, gender, their, their youth, their age, and class inequalities all intersect to potentially limit um, the, their capacity to fulfill their aspirations and ambitions, as some of my uh, participants in the research confirmed. And, and yet, yet they are corseted and very much cared for within what may be viewed as caring and very respectful family relationships, which they themselves value highly. So the girls are much loved, but constrained at the same time, making it quite difficult, but not impossible, to, to, to negotiate competing expectations for their lives living in a modern world. Um, so one of the key findings is this, this contradictory and complex situation that some gypsy travel girls I met confront. They're, they're trying to strike the balance um, between a safe uh, but restrictive life in the private spaces of their home and a hostile and but potentially enriching life in the public spaces of education and work. So they talked about how their goals resonate alongside the tension they negotiate between the love and respect they have for their families and, and yet the restrictions imposed on them at home and, and even at school. Silence is, is a, it's a, it's a difficult thing because most, here in the West, we tend to, we tend to view silence as, um, as a negative thing. You know, that the, that this, this thing about, you know, we talk about talk therapy, talking is good, talking things out. There's a kind of liberation when you voice your, your views, your ideas, your thoughts. Um, but I, what I found was that the the silence in in the in the way that the girls enacted silence was quite a powerful thing for them. Um, so, for example, as I mentioned earlier, one of the ways in which they practice this silence is by self exclusion, choosing not to uh, to participate in mainstream schooling, choosing not to participate in mainstream communities around them, staying very much within the boundaries of their own family and their own community. So by that withdrawal, by that silencing, they protect themselves. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful thing to do when you're trying to keep yourself sane, and it's how they've remained resilient. The, the other way in which the silence operates is that there are certain topics that are not talked about freely. So um, issues to do with sex, sexuality are a taboo. 
So those sorts of topics were, were not discussed at all and are not discussed freely um, within the communities. The, the, the silence also came in the form of, of a sort of um, respect for their family. Um, they had their own views about how they might have liked to have led their lives but they realized that if they tried to exert that wish, that ambition, it might come at a very heavy price. Um, they, I met some uh, gypsy traveler women who were ostracized from their families and communities because they chose a different path, a path that went, was in conflict with a gypsy or traveler traditional way of life in conflict with their culture. In choosing to be silent in, at strategic moments and in strategic ways, they are ironically showing their agency. It's not perfect, but it's a form of weak, it's a form of weak power, is how I, I put it in my book. When you're looking to the lives of marginalized peoples or minoritized peoples. There's, there's a danger of essentializing and homogenizing, particularly in this case, women's issues, um, and particularly those who are non-white and, and non-Western. So, so my, my research utilizes something called black feminist epistemology, otherwise known and commonly known as intersectionality, um, precisely because it allows us to see women in their particular lived context uh, um, without minimizing the effects of differences between different forms of the subjugations or concealing one form of oppression from another. So each form of oppression, in fact, informs the other. The, the race oppression informs the gender oppression. The gender oppression informs the race oppression. The age oppression then makes it even more complicated and so on and so forth. So it, it's only by attention to these very situated, localized accounts of marginalized lives that you then get to see the bigger picture, the patterns of, of how people's situated lived experiences are different, but also the same in many ways. So here are some examples. As, as, as I said, I met around 20 gypsy and traveler women, and their voices revealed several things, that there's a lack of recognition and respect for their, for their culture's alternative ways of doing and, and thinking, ways of living. And you can say that the same about other indigenous women, that there's a lack of respect for the way uh, their culture uh, does things. Women from the global south, for example, Muslim women. The gypsy and travel women are also caught betwixt and between gender and racist oppression from outside their communities on the one hand and gendered or sexist oppression sometimes from within their communities. And there's this great American um, black feminist called Bell Hooks who argues that there's no such thing as gender in patriarchy. Um, patriarchy is not gendered. So the women I met were as much controlled and subordinated by their grandfathers, fathers, uncles, and brothers, as they were their grandmothers, mothers, and aunts and sisters. And again, you could argue that this applies to indigenous women, women from the global south, Muslim women, 
white working class women and so on. And I mean, sexism. So sexism has not meant an absolute lack of choices. So these these women have choices. It's just that their choices are limited. And you you know, and still as women, we would argue that our choices are limited today because. Even if we're not marginalized women, even if we're not white working class women or gypsy traveler women, we are still fighting for more choice. We're still fighting for equal pay, fighting to break the glass ceiling, fighting to be respected in the home and in the workplace. Um, so, you know, you can see what I'm trying to say about how we each have our own little fight going on, but there are patterns in the way that we're having to fight them. And there's an underlying fear of speaking truth to power, fear of being criticized, being shamed by your families, being ostracized by your community. And again, you know, this is something that was very clear that came through in, in, in the lives of the gypsy traveler girls that I met. But that that is very similar as well, for example, to the women who um, have been sexually assaulted, the women afraid to speak up of the assault and the Me Too movement backlash, that same sort of fear and shaming and being ostracized. So even if the gypsy traveler girls said that they were dissatisfied with the systems in which they existed, whether it's family or school or community, there are, they are also aware of the ways in which their lives are constricted as girls and women. And so it was very difficult for them to disrupt and dissent without great personal cost. And as you know, there are many women who have fought for rights right across class, gender, race, age, at great personal cost. There is a wonderful philosopher from the Global South called Gayathri Bivak, and she asked this question. She asked if the subaltern can speak. So can subaltern women speak for themselves? Um, and she argued that for some women, it is impossible to speak up because they are divided by gender, class, caste, religion, politics, poverty, income. And so these, these divisions do not allow them to easily stand up in unity. And this goes some way to explaining why the uh, United Nations Development Project report in just just a few months ago, actually, um, they revealed a report that there still remains a significant absence of voice for many women in the global south and actually also women in the West. Mm-hmm.